Well, he's, he, we're still not working, so live. Okay, we're live. He says we're live. Okay. All right. Mem, blood, water, chaos, mighty. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from all evil paths, so I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Okay, good stuff there. Let's see, we got quite a few prayers again, just like last Thursday. Uh, Lothar, he's moving to Nuremberg and he's still in a lot of pain. Yeah, so he's, I don't know why he's moving. He didn't say the reason, but it may be because of his cancer. I don't know, but he is moving and so that's extra stress. Let's see here. Jim and Ejen Castle are looking for the Lord's guidance in the next uh, phase of their life. And let's see here, Kent has a great job opportunity and he asked us to pray about that. Bruce has offered, been offered a job. Bruce and Jackie, some of you know him from uh, Facebook. Uh, he's finally been offered a job. We prayed for them a few times. And uh, so uh, he had to take a drug test ETC and that passed. And so he's got the job. And so we want to thank the Lord for that. Cindy is suffering with mental issues and needs Jesus. And then Akemi, who's over in Japan, you see her posting. Uh, she has four Christmas concerts and she's a tad ner nervous about it. So she'll do fine. I know she will. She'll be a good witness for the Lord. Matthew Shrum is, uh, needs continued prayers for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Leanne needs big prayer for some very personal issues. And then Graham just emailed me before I left the house this afternoon. He's in declining health, and uh, his son's marriage is in trouble. And, and then, uh, okay, we got Freda, and we've got Darla, and we've got Blake that we want to pray for. All of them here in Sarasota that are still unable to come to church, and they're they're going through their own troubles. Friend, um, Carrie, Carrie is back, back, in the, back. Carrie is back in the hospital. Okay, so we got a bunch of prayer requests. Heavenly Father. You know these people, and you know the other ones that uh, maybe I writ, wrote down somewhere else and didn't bring them tonight, but uh, you're aware of all of them. You know everybody's uh, difficulties. You know their troubles and their trials and also the triumphs. We're so thankful for the job offer there, and uh, we're just we're very thankful to you for that. And good news for Walter and his family that uh, has uh, come in about his grandson and also uh, his sons. Even though he lost his job, he's got uh, the ability to get paid for six months. We're thankful for that. So there's all kinds of issues, Lord, that you're in control of, and you're certainly looking out for your people. And Lord, we would also ask that this uh, Bible study would be to your glory and that it would be handled properly and that it would be uh, edifying to those that listen. And Lord, we thank you that Sergio was able to get the streaming working again today. And uh, so we just, we, we look to you with thanks and praise and also with petitions. And Lord, that's where we're at right now. And we just leave these things in your capable hands, knowing that you are taking care of them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We got uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53 is where we're starting today. So we're almost done with the book. We are. We're back it up with 50. All right. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at that very last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we will be changed. 53. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. With immortality. Wonderful stuff there. Okay, I had a question from some of my friends just this week about that. I, you know, uh, Enoch and Elijah are were taken up to heaven, and we're making the assumption that it's they that are the two witnesses that will come back. It's not Moses. People say it's Moses and Elijah. That That's not the case. Moses has died. It's appointed for man to die, and then the judgment. There's no two deaths. So um, it's probably Enoch and Elijah that are going to come back. And they said, well, they're coming back, but they're going to die in the book of Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. Mm -hmm. And is that going to happen to the people that are raptured? And the answer is no. There's a completely different category. They were taken, but they weren't really raptured. They were taken for the Lord's purposes to serve him. And part of that serving means coming back and dying for the Lord. The people that are raptured, as it says right here, will be given immortality. And taking that back just a little bit, because I've been thinking about it all week, as Albert Barnes comments on verse 52, um, the last trumpet, and how you know people try to fit that into the seven trumpets of Revelation or some other trumpet that's out there. And that is not what that's speaking of. It is speaking of the end of the age, the last trumpet of the age. It's, it's a closing of the church age. And so that's what's coming. And whenever that happens, it is going to be instantaneous. We're not, it's not going to be anything that we need to uh, be concerned about. We're going to be so quickly with the Lord that we'll just be there. We're here one moment and we'll be gone the next. And whatever happens to the world after that is not going to be our concern. It's in the book of Revelation. It tells you what's coming on the world. And uh, if people aren't ready for that, then they need to get right with Jesus. But, uh, you know, that, that's later. We'll get to that in a couple months, the book of Revelation. I, we got to go through 2 Corinthians. And, and we wouldn't be in a month or two, but we'll get there. Anyway, um, uh, we have um, uh, lost my thought. Okay, so 1553, I'll read it again. This corruptible must put on incorruption. We are never going to die again. We will be incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. All right, so Paul continues with his explanation of the words of verse 50 in this verse now. He states two, two, two truths for us concerning our resurrection body. One, it must be suited to the spiritual nature of heaven. That's a given. And two, it must be suited to the eternal nature of heaven. It's going to be a completely different category than what we have right now. And, you know, I, I've said this a million times and people never seem to get it. I do, and... It, that's all that matters to me. But I say, I can't imagine living forever. I, the last thing in the world that I would want is to live forever in this body. I, I can't even imagine it. I, I mean, it doesn't interest me. The thought of living forever in this body where I can trip and break a toe or, you know, have to go cut up another tree and hurt my back or, or you know, uh, fix a sign outside of the church and fall and break an arm, whatever. It doesn't interest me. And I don't know. People say that and they say, how can you say that? I do not want to be Elon Musk that has my body preserved so that it can live forever. That doesn't interest me, okay? What is coming is on a completely different category than anything that we can imagine, and that is what the Lord has prepared, prepared us for. 
not these fallen bodies. They get old, they get ugly, they, you know, they break down, you get, well, it's true. I mean, you just, you know, uh, she's laughing, but it's true. Just look at me. So uh, anyway, both of these are requirements. The spiritual nature of heaven, the eternal nature of heaven concerning the body we will be given. The word for put on here is concerning both the incorrupt and the immortal aspects of this body. The word is enduo. According to Strong's, this comes from two words, en and duo. Duno, in the sense of sinking into a garment or to invest with clothing, literally or figuratively. And so he would say array or clothe or endue yourself with these things, put on. This is elsewhere explained in greater detail by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 4. So we'll go read those, but we'll, it'll be just, it won't be long and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but we'll read the verses and we'll analyze them in probably a few months. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, meaning our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Once again, it, it's suited for the heavenly. It's not suited for the earthly. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. As I was just saying, our backs hurt. You know, we break something. The, the guy over at the mail pack, I had to ship something out a day ago. And he's standing there. I walk in and he's got his arm up in a uh, cast. And I'm, Jack, what'd you do, buddy? He says, well, I was out and uh, I was in my yard and wasps started coming out of the ground and i said those were yellow jackets yellow jackets live in the ground he got 30 bites on him and he was running and he tripped and broke his arm so yeah i mean that's what that's what this is speaking about we got bodies that are frail we get happened to tom <laughs> tom almost died he got bit by so many yeah what a year and a half ago maybe two years now he was so bad, you had to get a oatmeal, right? Put it into the uh, bathtub, and he sat in the bathtub all night long, soaking the poison out of him. What, he would have died otherwise. He had hundreds of bites. So this is not what we can look forward to. In any way, shape, or form, it's going to be something so wonderful and so glorious. Finishing that for we who are in this tent, grown, absolutely grown, being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed, meaning die and be without a body, but further Clothed, meaning something else, that mortality may be swallowed up by life, okay? And he says right here something that we'll get to it when we get there, but I'll tell you right now, is that we are, the, the doctrine is anthropological hylomorphism. It means this man, anthropological, and then hylomorphism means the dual nature. People, you'll hear in sermons all the time, or somebody talk about the the triple nature of man. He is body, soul, and spirit. That is not taught in the Bible. The man is a body, soul, unity, hylomorphic, okay? There's, there's two natures to man. The spiritual is not a separate nature. It's, an, it's a connection to God that was lost. It's not a separate nature. When Adam was created, he had a connection with God. That was cut when he fell, okay? And so there's no spiritual nature, okay, that or spiritual connection to God. He has a he's a living being, he's a soul, and he's got a body. Okay. And this is justified by this verse right here where it says that um uh, I just lost the verse. I was in two Corinthians chapter five. Let me read that again. Uh two Corinthians for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, 
And he says in verse 3, backing it up, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. What he's speaking about is that when we die, our body is gone. And so our soul is naked. It's not a natural state. Our natural state is to be united to something, whether it's this mortal body or the immortal body. Okay, that is a natural state. The soul without a body is in an unnatural or naked state. And that justifies the doctrine of anthropological hylomorphism. Okay, the spirit is simply the reconnection with God through Christ, which happens when you call on Jesus and are saved. That's all that is. Okay, it's just so a spiritual reconnection. Yes. We have a body, temporary body in heaven. I do not believe that. People say that, and I've heard people argue that point, but I do not believe it. And I'll justify that when we get to 2 Corinthians. But what he asked, in case the people didn't hear, is will we have a body? Uh, you're talking about when we die before we're actually given our permanent body. Is that That's right. Yeah, okay. An interim body. I would say no. Okay, people will say, uh, they'll use Paul's, I know a man that uh, 14 years ago uh, uh, went to the third heaven, and uh, they'll say that uh, uh, he heard things, he saw things, and therefore he had a body. And so, well, one, that's a completely different thing that's going on, okay? That's not a normal thing. Um, uh, but secondly, uh, it says in uh, 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel 28, that uh, uh, Saul went to the witch of Endor, which if you know the uh, uh, bewitched, bewitched mother Endora, that's where her name came from. Yeah, she... Uh, uh, he went to this witch of Endor and she raised Samuel. And there's no doubt, the text makes no doubt that it was Samuel. And he's a spirit. He doesn't have a body at all. And yet he seems to be clothed in a mantle. And he's an old man. He has the spiritual aspect of a uh, being, but he doesn't have an actual body. Why have you raised me? He said, I wouldn't use that as prescriptive either. That's just simply the state that he was in. But what I would go with, and somebody's going to say that, oh, Charlie's a heretic for saying that. That's okay. I don't mind that. Paul says that when we die, we sleep. Okay. That's what he says. Now, people will say absent from the body present with the Lord. That does not necessarily mean that we have a body and that we're standing there with the Lord. It means that the Lord has control of us. We are the Lord's in a state of sleep. Our soul is doing whatever it's doing. But I, this is just me because all we have is a few verses and they can be debated. But I would say, one, that having a body would negate sleep, and two, uh, having a body would be a, 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 a pointless thing, because it's not an incorruptible body that we're going to be given, and it's not the corruptible body that we have. So there's nothing in the Bible that justifies a interim state body, okay? You can't take the, the parable of Lazarus and use that. What I, I would assume, and this is just based on the terminology that the Bible uses, is that we will die all of us, unless the Lord comes at the rapture. And this is justified again by 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, which I'll say in a second, is that we die and we wake up and we're with the Lord. It'll be just like that. It doesn't matter if it's one minute or if it's 2,000 years. And that people call it soul sleep. I don't like that term. You're just simply sleeping. You're, you're no longer physically alive. Your body, and once again, Samuel, and I don't want to use that as prescriptive, but it gives you an insight of what's going on. He says, why have you brought me up? Why have you disturbed me? It was like he was just in, in a state of, I'm content with what, what I was in, and now I'm disturbed from it. Don't want to use that as a prescriptive thing, but it's something to give us an insight that maybe what's going on. The parable of Lazarus by Jesus is making a theological point. It's not prescribing anything. It's just saying that this is, this is something that people may be talking about. I, I would not use that in any way, shape, or form as 
a justification for anything after you know going up to Abraham's bosom and wanting water and not wanting water and all that kind of stuff. I would not use that as a doctrine for what happens after we die. Okay, I would just simply like Revelation 6 for the souls under the... Right, and I, I would take that as the tribulation martyrs in Revelation 6. I, I know they can't hear you. He brought up Revelation 6 and the people that are crying out for their, their blood, crying out, when will we be... That would be the Revelation martyrs, okay? Um, that comes after Revelation 4, 1, which I know some people will argue that's a picture of the rapture. It's not a picture of the rapture. I'm pretty convinced it is. The church ages in Revelation 1 through 3. It's mentioned 20... 20 sometimes probably, you know, the church here, the church here, and talking to the people in the church and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden in Revelation 4, verse 1, there's a trumpet, there's come up here, you know, in, which is what basically 1 Thessalonians 4 says. So people argue this and they'll say, hey, you're a heretic. You know, that's not heresy. Okay, heresy is something that will keep somebody from being saved. This is just simply a doctrinal issue and it's a future unknown doctrinal issue for the 99% of it. We can we can look, we can speculate, but it is not something that we can be dogmatic about, especially because dogs don't care about those things anyway. But um, yeah, I would I would say that Revelation 4.1 is pointing to the rapture. The church is not mentioned again until Revelation 19.10 when we return with Christ. Now people will, once again, they'll argue that and say, well, that's that heavenly host, that's the angels. No, that is the church returning with Christ, okay? But even if you want to argue that, the church is never mentioned between those. So the souls under the altar would be the Revelation saints. That's just me. I, I don't want to argue with anybody over that. I don't need anybody to send me their analysis of that, okay? I've read every analysis possible on every one of these things. That's just where I stand on it. And so uh, that's just how I see it. I do not see there being a need for a interim body. Oh, and that takes us to 1 Thessalonians 4 before we go on, which uh, it says there in 1 Thessalonians, and here's a reason why I would not think that we had a body, an interim body, is it says, um, I don't want you to be ignorant, brother, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That means they're asleep, they are, they are dead, but he's using the term sleep because that's the state that Paul describes people that are gone. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that if Jesus died and rose again, which he did, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep with Jesus. Okay, so they're asleep with Jesus. They're not awake with Jesus. He doesn't say that. And it says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That means that the Lord has control over them. It does not have to mean that they are sitting there with the Lord because the Lord is doing what he's doing right now. Okay, and whatever the dead are doing, I don't think it means that they're sitting there waiting for the Lord to give them a, a, a third body. They are, he has control over them is what that's saying. So um, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. God will bring those who sleep with him in Jesus, meaning they are with Jesus because Jesus has control over them. He is their savior. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So that means that they're in a state that hasn't transpired yet. Okay, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, Woohoo! Revelation 4.1, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Assuming, or making the assumption in my mind, that they did not have a body, that they were asleep, present with the Lord in, in his control, but asleep in the Lord, they are raised, they're given that immort, immortal body, and then we will be raised up together with them, as it says in the next verse, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The Bible does not speak of an interim body, okay? People will force that from parables and from other things, but 
I, I would not go that far. I would go with the fact that uh, Samuel, just as an example, he was called an Elohim, which is the word for God. I see an Elohim coming out of the, uh, you know, the ground or whatever it said in 1 Samuel 28. And so he has the mantle, he has the appearance, but he doesn't have any body. He's just simply an Elohim. And if you want to know what the best way to think of the word Elohim, because it means Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim can be God, it can be a man, it can be a being, a spirit, it can be a false God, a fake God can be an Elohim, okay? The word Elohim, if you want to just think of a good way of analyzing what Elohim means is over there. It's not in our sphere. God, the God, Ha Elohim, the God is over there. We're not in his sphere. He is God. He is in a completely different sphere than we are. He is in control of all things. He is God. He is Elohim. But you can have people that are Elohim, like judges as translated, I think, in one of the Psalms. Those are people that are over there. We are not in their category. They are judging us. They are Elohim, okay? that's It's not a normal thing to call people Elohim, but it's a positional thing. It's Elohim, okay? Uh, a false god can be, well, he's he's a god, Elohim. He's over there. He's not in this realm. Even if he's a false god and comes out of somebody's imagination, you have to describe it somehow, okay? I'm not trying to say that there are other real gods. Paul says there are many so-called gods, and people take that and they say, that means there's gods. No, he's making a point that there are no gods when he says so-called, okay? There is one god. There is only one god. So the term Elohim, you have to be careful with. And there are people that take that and they really abuse it, okay? You start watching these, these uh, people that, uh, there's one in particular, I'm not going to give his name right now, but he, he gets people excited about the word Elohim. And he way misuses it from scripture. I want you to know that. If you start watching something and he starts talking about gods here and there and, and the heavenly realm and there's these things going on. <laughs> Listen, I've listened to one of his sermons. I took everything that he uh, talked about, and it was just wrong, okay? Example after example, I went into scripture, and it was just wrong. So be careful watching that kind of stuff, because one, it's exciting, and people love sensation. If you don't believe that, I, I said to Sergio a week ago, we were talking about something, laughing about something, and I said, I would love to one time on the Prophecy Update, just put the title, The Nephilim Are Here. I would have 7 million views that week, even if we did just a regular prophecy update, because people like that kind of junk. Well, you they, should do that. Uh, I know. Family named the, the Nephilim. Yeah, the, the, yeah, invited family named the Nephilim. That's very good. But, you know, that. what I'm saying is that sensation sells. If you want to have funny doctrine, then go watch these people that do sensational stuff. And you're going to have all kinds of funny doctrine. You're not going to have anything based in reality, and you're not having anything that is in accord with this word. This is not sensational in that sense. This is the, uh, the mind of God. It is the redemption of man. It's uh, all kinds of things like that, which most people find really boring. I hate to say it, but people want sensation. They want to be tickled with their ears. And very few people, I, I was laying in back here, taking a break before you all came in today, and I kept thinking to myself, theology is hard work. It's hard work to say, I want to know what this passage is saying and why God is telling us this way. And it's so easy to do a Bible study where you just talk about sensational stuff. You get 14 million views on YouTube, and you haven't edified anybody. They haven't been built up in their faith. But if you want to know real theology, you've got to use your mind. You've got to think things through. And I don't want to belabor that point, but um, yeah, I, I just I, I want to take the most conservative view on the Bible possible. 
because that's what the way I really believe God has given it to us is a very conservative book which tells us certain core doctrines and he doesn't go out into crazy tangents to get us to those core doctrines. He keeps us in a very narrow path on each one of those doctrines so that we don't get sidetracked by those things. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, do, yes. You, you stop at 2 Corinthians at, at verse 5. At verse 5, okay. You stop there. It's like you didn't read it, but it's probably the best line of that whole... Okay, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There you go. So we got the Spirit. So ultimately, and once again, I don't want to argue with people. If, if they want to believe they have a, 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 another body, that's fine. I, I won't argue it. This is just what I believe, and he asked the question, and so that's where I stand on that. But ultimately, we who believed in Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection are saved. We have the Spirit as a guarantee, as he just noted. And whatever Paul is promising us in these verses, the ones we just read and the one back in 1 Corinthians, that is going to happen. All of the other stuff, I may be wrong. He may be wrong, that guy may be wrong, but the important thing is that this is an absolute sure hope that we have. There's no doubt about it. The things that are open and explicit are absolutely 100% true. If, you know, it, the people that watch the Bible studies, I don't know if they watch the sermons, but I will say to them, to their tickled ears, that if you want to know the surety, the absolute surety of Scripture, I mean, you may have it in your heart already, but if you don't, Go back and watch from Genesis 1-1 and follow along with what we've done because I'm telling you, when you get done with Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus and you get into numbers where we're at now, if you can't see that God has given us all of this information in advance, way, way in advance, and it's confirmed every single time we open a new passage in Scripture, I don't know where your head is. I mean that sincerely. If you can't see it after seeing how God has revealed in those passages the plan of redemption and His Son your faith will be grounded if you don't watch them, uh, if you do watch them. If you're not watching them now, and if you don't watch them, your faith will be grounded if you start watching them. That's what I meant to say. Anyway, um, so that's just my little plug for the sermons, but that's fine. You don't need to go into the Old Testament to have faith in Jesus, but you will be grounded in your faith when you go through those and you realize the book of Ruth. If you've never seen the Ruth sermons, there's only a few of them, I think eight. And I'm telling you, Jesus is all over it. It's such a beautiful book. Go watch that. Start with that. And if you say, hey, I really learned something, then take the bigger dip and go into Genesis and Exodus and I, you will be blessed. Okay, so um, finish up our commentary here. And so when the trump sounds, the, the uh, blessed hope. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got to go down here. In this, we can see the use of two separate metaphors for what our heavenly bodies will be like. The first is a garment. The second is a tent. These will be garments that never wear out and a home from which, which is from everlasting to everlasting, given by God for the glories which lie ahead. So we have a garment, we have a tent. All right, life application. What discomfort do you feel right now? Okay, you know, everybody remember Pat? She's from Massachusetts and she was here last year and she walked up before you all came today to say hi. She's back in Sarasota and she's was saying, I feel older now than when I left, right? I mean, that's how we are, and we have discomfort. So what discomfort is the question do you feel right now? You won't be feeling it ever again when you get your resurrection body. Now, that's something to hope for. I got to tell you what, you, the list of uh, prayers today, the list of things that have been going on in people's lives, and man, when you get your resurrection body, whether you get an interim body or whether you don't, 
you will get a resurrection body. And when you get it, you will forever not feel the things that you feel right now. And you will want to live forever. I, if you're like me and you say, I just don't want to live in this body forever, you will when you get your new one, 100%. Okay, 54. When the, imper when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Absolutely wonderful words. I mean, that it just it's so wonderful to come to that verse and to say, death has been swallowed up in victory. It really has. Christ has prevailed over death. And if you are in Christ, death cannot hold you. Okay. And uh, was it the same question or somebody else asked me this week um, about, uh, uh, oh, I think I just added it into my answer about the uh, body. There is a reason why we're not taken to glory right now. There's a reason why we live and we die. Okay. Anybody think why that is? Not done with this here. One is yeah, that's a good answer. But specifically, I would say it's one. The dispensation has gone on for how long? Over two thousand years, yeah. right? Somebody has to do it. Now, if you were given an eternal body the moment you called on Christ, then everybody would see that you have an eternal body. You haven't died, and they'd be calling on Christ. Okay, that would negate faith. It would oh, negate faith, faith, faith because now you have sight. You don't have faith anymore. You have Satan of faith and not sight. Okay. And secondly, because it's been 2,000 years and because we haven't been given a eternal body already, then that means that we're going to die and somebody needs to replace us. Okay. So God has a plan. There is a reason for our death right now. There's a reason. And part of the reason for dying as a Christian is to give God the glory. How many times have you seen somebody that's a Christian that died well? Even if they died in a really bad state with pain or, or losing their, their faculties or whatever, they died well because they were clinging to Christ. That's in it, all by itself. That's its own reason to give God glory. Okay. There are lots of other reasons why God has left us here. But I would say the main reason is to carry on the message of the gospel because God has a long-term plan and we're just short-term units right now. Okay. But there is a point. Whether it's going to be in our life or not, and I would say, I would hope so, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, is that there is a point where we will no longer have to worry about death because we are going to be raptured. And that will be the end of that for believers. We're not there yet, but when it happens, whether it's in 10 minutes or whether it's in 10 years, I think it's coming soon. I think most of you probably feel that way as well when you look at the state of the world, but one of the things that I think about in the state of the world is that four or five years ago, I never would have thought that the world would be the way it is today. Not in a million years would I have thought it. And that tells you that if we didn't think of four years ago, maybe in four years from now, it'll be 10 times worse. But so it, it could go on. We don't know. So I'm not one of these speculators on the rapture. I, I have a feeling because Israel's in the land and because things are, you know, lined up properly. Probably it's going to happen, but I'm not going to give anybody a false sense about that one. Okay, 1554, the thought of the previous verses repeated by beginning with, so when, at the time that these things occur, what was written by Isaiah the prophet will come to pass. In chapter 28 of his book, he writes about the work of the Lord. Let me see, Paul cites him in Isaiah chapter 25, and he's in verse 8. Let me see if I might back up a little bit there. Uh, verse uh, 27, 26, 25. Okay, 
uh, verse 8. Yeah, I'm going to go back to 6. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, of a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces right there in the book of Revelation that's referred to the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken so it is coming it's assured that it's going to come and all we can do is just wait for that day but Paul is writing about it to us now citing Isaiah Paul's citation is not a direct quote but the intent remains in the Old Testament the word forever in Hebrew is elsewhere translated as in victory in Greek, because the intent of the words is ultimately the same. That which is rendered forever has been accomplished by a victor. The word for swallowed is katapino, which means to drink down, to swallow, to devour, or destroy, or even consume. Paul uses the same word in the same way in 2 Corinthians 5, which I just read you a minute ago, 5 verse 4, when speaking about our resurrection bodies. Let me take you there again really quickly, just so you remember what I said, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 4, where is, oh, 5, there it is. Uh, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up, katapino, by this life. And then it says, um, <clears throat> where are we? As there is a definite article in front of the word death in both Isaiah's and Paul's words, there is in this the idea that death, the swallower, is swallowed up. The final realization of this is found in Revelation 20, verse 14, which says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So death is a thing. It's being personified here, but it's it's a thing that happens. And yet it says it's cast into the lake of fire, showing you that the lake of fire is more than just a physical lake. It's something that is just the end of things, okay? And whatever that means, because death isn't actually an entity with a personality, okay? We're personifying death there, but death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. That means there will be no more place for the dead Hades, and there will be no more dying to go to the place of the dead, which is death itself. Okay, they're cast into the lake of fire. They're ended, in other words. However, for the believer, we don't have to wait until the final destruction of death, but only for that time when we receive our eternal glorified bodies. Therefore, Paul's words are directed at individuals who make up the collective whole. When each person who is glorified receives his body, for them, it is the start of an eternal walk. For some, it will be at the rapture, and others, it will be at the first resurrection, which follows the tribulation period, and for others, it will be at the end of the millennium. For all, it will be glorious. Life application. Everybody understand that there's several resurrections. You've got the rapture, which is not considered a resurrection. It's the rapture. It's a special event in redemptive history. Then you've got the first resurrection that's listed in the book of Revelation, and it's for those people that were martyred during the uh, yeah, tribulation period, thank you. And, and um, uh, it, that's the first resurrection. It says, this misquote, I'm sure, but blessed and holy is he who uh, is raised at the first resurrection. Death no longer has hold over him. I know that's a misquote. I know it is. But um, it, it's saying that those people that were martyred within the tribulation period for their faith, they believed, they were willing to give their lives up for it. They will be raised at the first resurrection and they will never die again. 
Okay, that is it for them. They do not have to go to any other judgment. And then after that, you've got the general resurrection at the end of the millennium. That's for all people in all other categories. They're going to be raised. They're going to be judged. You know, most of them are going to be cast into the pit, but there will be people that will be uh, given eternal life at that time too. It's not a totally condemning uh, uh, judgment there. Okay, but those are basically the events that are coming in the future. Anyway. Um, uh, so, because of the resurrection of Christ, we have the absolute sure proof of the fulfillment of the words of the Bible. God's word cannot fail. What he has promised will be realized. And so be of good cheer because, as it says, death is swallowed up in victory. Christ has overcome. Oh, man, it's just so wonderful. Just to even think about it. So, okay, go on to verse 55. And... Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, oh, death is your stand. Okay, where is that quoted from? Hosea. Hosea, absolutely. That's a... footnotes. Oh, good, good for you. Hosea, see, Hosea, it's 13, and then in verse, he read the footnotes. Okay, it says there, um, verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. So, so much for, you know, the, the, the Sadducees that said there's no angels and there's no resurrection, and they only held to the books of Moses. Well, guess what? Jesus blew them away from the books of Moses. Even the books of Moses show that there will be a resurrection. But Hosea does as well. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Okay, so there you go. Paul, in a sense of jubilation over what he is considering, now adapts the words of Hosea 13, 14, which I just read to you, to his comments of the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is the destroyer of death in Hades, meaning the grave. And so in his exuberance at the thought of Christ fulfilling that passage, he adapts words for his audience to consider with him. Now, remember, Paul is sitting there and he's writing this. And what does he do? He refers to Hosea, a book that most people probably don't even know exists, even in his time. It's just one of those little obscure books. And yet there's so much richness in the book of Hosea. But, you know, talking about Hades, the grave and the pit, that's one of the things that Solomon says there is, can never get enough. One of them is fire. Fire can never get enough. It never says enough, right? Well, Hades or the, the grave can never get enough. It doesn't matter how many people go there. There's plenty of room for more. Okay. That's going to end someday. We all have experienced the effects of death and we all know the seeming finality of it. What death claims is beyond our power to restore. And so all we are left with is hopelessness at the eternal separation he has brought to us. Paul likens that to a sting. The Greek word is kentron, and it means a sting or a goad. In this, it specifically indicates one which ends in death. The word is used also in Revelation 9 verse 10 in the sense of a tormentor. So let me take you there really quickly. Revelation 9, 10, they had tails like scorpions. There were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. So it's the same word used there as that Paul is using here right now. And it says um, the sting is removed through the work of Jesus. And so Paul poetically asks death, where is your sting? In Christ, it is no longer the great destroyer it once was. His sting is gone and death has been rendered impotent. And the sting of death once filled the abyss of Hades. It appeared that its consuming pit was the final victor. But Christ himself unlocked the gates of Hades and paved the way for the souls of men to be revived 
to eternal life. Yes, praise the Lord. Because of this, Paul asks, Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Hell stood open, welcoming all who came its way. It reveled in its ability to hold more and more souls as the ages passed. It felt smug, as if its power was unstoppable. But Christ prevailed over it and purchased release for the captive souls. This is why Revelation verse 20, or chapter 20, says that someday those two foes will be forever banished from their once exalted position. They will be cast into the lake of fire, never to consume another. The victory belongs to the Lord. Let me take you there really quickly, just so you can see where it says that. I've already cited it, but we'll read it to you. Revelation 12, 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Meaning that they were not redeemed from Hades. Everybody got the symbolism there? They're dead because they never got the spiritual reconnection to God. That is what brings life. It's not this physical body. It's not talking about if I go out and have a heart attack on the, uh, the pavement out front on the way home. That's not what that's talking about. It's talking about the spiritual reconnection to God. And when we die physically, if we don't have that spiritual reconnection, we remain dead. And so into the lake of fire you go. But if you have that spiritual reconnection before you die, then you will come out of that grave and you are redeemed from it already potential or actually it's just that Christ has to finish the process in you whether you know it's at the rapture for us or it's for the people that are in the ground that are coming out at the rapture one way or another death meaning that spiritual disconnect no longer has any hold over you when you come to Christ okay so one leads to the other the spiritual disconnect eventually leads to the physical death of a person okay but the spiritual reconnection is what matters when that's made your body may still die but it is it is finished with god you are his forever okay so life application nothing is impossible for the lord what we feel is the most hopeless of all situations is completely under his control so stand fast in your faith in him and in his ability to handle every detail of every promise that his word provides. Oh, oh, it's just marvelous. Okay, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Okay, other than power, it says strength. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And there you go, right there. Why would anybody, even before reading and analyzing the, uh, the contents of the, the verse, just think about it. It says right there, the strength of sin is the law. Why would anyone want to go back to the law of Moses? Why would anybody want to do that? The law. Remember, there was a law that was given in the Garden of Eden. One law, and it was in the negative. Don't do this thing. It's not, you have to go out and you have to work hard. You have to go do something. That wasn't even in the equation. There was nothing he had to actually do. There was only something he had to not do. And that one sin brought death on every single human being in the world. Everybody. Okay? And then you have more laws added in over time by God, and eventually the law of Moses steps in, and it gives you 613 laws, impossible laws. Why would anybody want to go back to that? I don't understand that thinking. I can't even grasp it that people would contemplate that. The strength of sin is the law. Let's go for it. In the previous verse, Paul cited scripture, which said, Oh, death, where is your sting? 
he now takes time to explain what this is telling us. The sting of death is sin. Again, death is personified as if he were a serpent or a scorpion with a powerful sting, a sting called sin. When sin is found in man, then death is prevailed. This is seen explicitly in Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. That's right, it's death. But Paul also provided another truth in Romans. Adam sinned, and that sin became an infection in him, which spread to all of his descendants. In Romans 5, verse 12, he explains this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Even if they haven't done anything, they haven't done anything right or wrong, simply being conceived, they sinned, because Adam sinned. That's what he's saying right there. All have sinned, okay? So, but Paul, being thorough and methodical, goes further in his explanation by saying that the strength of sin is the law. Adam had a law, albeit one commandment, but a law nonetheless. When he broke that law, even though it was done in innocence, wrath ensued. Paul explains the reason for this as well in Romans chapter 4. In verse 15, he, I'll start with 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Well, I'm in 1 Corinthians. I got to get into Romans. Sorry about that. Hello. Come on, Charlie McFly. Okay, uh, Romans 4, and I said, what was that? Verse 15. Okay, um, uh, we'll go to 13. We'll start at the beginning of the passage. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, think of the people under the law of Moses, if they are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Verse 15, because the law brings about wrath. That's right. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Doesn't matter what law you're speaking of. I just picked the law of Moses because that's the one that's binding on the people of Israel that people seem to want to go back under. 613 impossible laws, and they want to go back under that. But it doesn't matter what law you're speaking about. It could be anything that the Lord said to Noah. It could be something that he said later after Moses had died, but still applies to the people of Israel. All of these things are law. And when God gives a law and we transgress that law, you die because sin enters in. And that once again shows you the doctrine of eternal salvation. Once again, it shows you that. Because if you are in Christ and God is not imputing men's sins against them, which is 2 Corinthians 5.19, then what does that mean? You're not under law and you cannot die. I feel so bad for people that are trapped in the bondage of believing that you can somehow lose your salvation. It's, it, it, are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? Because if you are, then law is no longer applicable. You can sin, but there is no imputation of sin. Because if there was imputation of sin, then we would all be condemned two seconds after being saved. Every single one of us. None of us would last that long, I'm telling you. The thought that goes through your mind, because thought counts for intent, you will be condemned. All right, so here we go. If there was no command given to Adam, think of it. There's the whole garden and everything, including the tree of good and of knowledge and knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Okay? It's all there, exactly the way that God made it. And he doesn't give Adam a law. 
He gave Adam a law and he says, if you do this thing, you're going to die, right? If he didn't give them that law, could they have died? Absolutely not, because there's no law. Sin cannot be imputed. And therefore, they could have just gone up to that tree of knowledge of good and evil and they could have snacked away all day long and nothing would have happened to them. But they were given a law, okay? There would have been no transgression, but there was a command which was violated. And that tells you, it's not just the eating of the fruit that was wrong. It's the doing of the deed that's wrong. It doesn't matter what it was. It's the disobedience. And that takes you right back to the 10th commandment, which is, anybody? 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet. She's got it. Shall not covet. Okay? Who knows that you're coveting? You and the Lord. And that is it. There is nobody else that knows that you're coveting, and yet it is one of the big ten. That tells you that it is intent which brings about death. The fruit was just there to solidify it in their minds. Okay? It is intent. All right? If there was no command given to Adam, there would have been no transgression, but there was a command and it was violated. Thus, wrath resulting in death was the consequence. However, there was even a reason for this. In God's wisdom, he gave a law that he knew Adam would break. He knew he would. But in order to show man his utter dependence on the Lord, this took place. If not, then Adam would never have truly understood his relationship to his creator. We could not have appreciated anything that we can now appreciate because of that act. So everything has a good purpose, even something that we would think of as an evil. That goes to a sermon that I typed two weeks ago, and I built on this past Monday. You'll get that in about eight or nine weeks, okay? Some interesting things for you to think about, okay? But Adam would never have truly understood his relationship to his creator. Paul shows us this in Romans chapter 7. I'm going to not turn to 1 Corinthians 7 this time. I'm going to go to Romans 7, okay? And I'm going to take you to verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Think of Adam. He gave him a law and he would not have known what sin was. He could not have appreciated good or bad or any of those other things. There's nothing to compare his state with. And so God gave him the law. For I would not have known, here it is, covetousness, unless the law had said you shall not covet. If God didn't put that in the Big Ten, which he did, we would have had no idea that it was wrong. We would have coveted all day long and said, well, it doesn't matter because I'm not doing anything. It's just in my head. And yet God says that it is in your head and therefore it's wrong. Everybody see that? Coveting. Paul picks the little one, the one that doesn't matter, the last one, when it's the one that leads to everything else. When you covet, you end up taking somebody's wife and you commit adultery. When you covet, you end up lying because you stole something because you coveted it. When you covet, you end up killing somebody. When you covet, you make a false god of yourself or of something else. When you covet, it covers all of it. And that's why Paul picked that little one, which is actually a really big transgression in God's eyes. And that's what he did. We'll go on. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. Because now I know what coveting is. There's all kinds of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, the man who does these things will live by them. I found to bring death. There you go. 
It's right there. The book of Romans, go back and read it a hundred times and you're always going to get something new out of it. It's always going to renourish your soul. Okay. If there were no command given to Adam, there would have been no transgression. Adam realized what sin was because a law was given, which he then broke. By that sin entered the world, and along with that came death. This is what Paul is showing us in 1 Corinthians 15. But it must be remembered that he is doing it in relation to the work of Jesus Christ. Work which is greater than the failing of Adam. I love Romans where it says, more than, more than, much more than. He's showing these superlatives of what Christ did over what Adam did. Thus, in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. Now we'll qualify that. Every person who trusts that God's provision in Christ is sufficient will be rewarded with eternal life. Oh, Romans it's so exciting. Are, what? Romans or Hebrews? What? Romans. Or Romans. The better than. The better than. Well, that's greater than. That's Christ is greater than the law. Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is greater than Aaron. But when the much mores are in Romans, especially like Romans 5, much more this and much, yes. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you know, you can see Paul's handwriting in there. I don't care what anybody says. Hebrews is definitely Paul. Anyway, life application. In Christ, sin is dead because the law is nailed to the cross. We have prevailed over the law, not by our own actions but through the work of Jesus. Our faith in this act is what brings us reconciliation with God. Have faith that even your present failings can never separate you again from the love of God in him. You've got Adam as our federal head. You've got Christ as the federal head of something else. We can't do anything about this, but he did this over here and he says, here's how you move from him to me. How do you do it? You believe. That's all he asks is that you believe and you will move from the federal head here to the federal head here. And it's done. You are now in Christ. Once again, eternal salvation. Anybody that tells you that you can lose your salvation, I wouldn't listen to them. If they can't get that simple, basic doctrine right, if they can't understand the nuances of what Paul is saying, I would never listen to them because that is one of the fundamental issues of salvation is that it's not up to us. Not now, not later. Because if it was up to us later, then it means it was never of grace. Never. If we have to keep ourselves saved, then it wasn't of grace at the beginning. There was never a point where it was of grace. If people can't get that right, they are poor teachers. I almost used a, a what do you call it, a attached a descriptor on it, but I'll just say poor. Okay, 1557. Okay, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord. Jesus Christ. Woo! Oh man, oh, it's wonderful. Paul, Paul's pen now rejoices as the ink flows to the paper. You can almost hear his heart pounding with joy as he pens these words. An entire chapter of instruction and information concerning the resurrection of Christ and what it means to us has been written. And as he closes in on the end of his thoughts, he bursts into an ode of thanks. But thanks be to God. It was God who sent his son into the world on our behalf. It was God who allowed his son to die on the cross, thus paying man's sin debt. And it was God who raised him from the dead, having accepted his work. What part of that did we have in it? None. None. Absolutely none. Why would you go back and say, I need to observe the feasts of the Lord right now? As Paul says in Colossians 2, these things are a shadow the substance is found in Christ. Why would you say, 
I don't need to eat pork anymore. And then they, they, they'll, they'll pull this one across for me. Well, Jesus didn't eat pork and it's unclean. And they go through all of these things. When, what does it say in the book of Acts? Call nothing unclean that the Lord has. Just take things in their proper context. All things are pure for those who are in Christ. And for those who aren't in Christ, everything is defiled. Everything. It doesn't matter what you eat. Go eat a lamb chop. It is defiled. It has nothing to do with the substance of the meat. You know, I hear people say, well, they're God's garbage cans. Well, they taste really good. I can tell you that right now. No, I'm just saying, you know, it's like they, they say, well, you shouldn't eat a lobster because they're down there. They're God's garbage cans of the ocean. It's stupid. Once again, if you don't understand that, go back and watch the Leviticus 11 sermons and you'll understand why God chose certain animals and he names certain animals, but there are other unclean animals that he doesn't even bother naming that are right there in Israel. And then he gives clean animals, but he doesn't name all of the clean animals. Later, as a side note, he says this animal and this animal you can eat, but it wasn't a part of the dietary laws. Why? Why did he say that they have to have their hooves divided? Why did he say they have to have scales on them? Everything points to Jesus. Everything. Every word of it points to That's what, you know what, Pat, when she was here earlier, here's what she said to me. She said, I'm going through Leviticus right now. And she says, I never thought I'd be excited about the book of Leviticus. <laughs> she said, right on the same page with me. It's like, <laughs> I was thinking of you when she said that, because I remember you telling me that. And she said, I used to just read it and I'd go, blah, 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 blah. maybe I can skip this. Blah, 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 blah. And she says, now I just, it's like open. It's open because it's all about Jesus. All right, here we go. Um, uh, God raised him from the dead, having accepted his, it was God who raised him from the dead, having accepted his work. All of this came from the mind of God and from his eternal counsel for the sake of his wayward creatures. And so Paul gives thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's words there. In this, the word gives is a present participle. His words are so sure of the future victory that he states them as being accomplished in us already. In essence, he is giving us the victory. He is giving us the victory. We can think of a battle between warring parties and one side is not only winning, but assured of winning. The leader of the army could say, God is giving us the victory as an encouragement to the men who are still fighting. This is comparable to what Paul is saying here. We have no need to worry if we slip or fall along the way. Instead, we have absolute assurance of the victory which is being accomplished. In us, it's done. But for the people that are coming, that are coming to Christ, it is the victory is being accomplished. There's one step after another after another. The battle is won and he's winning it. We're just participating in it while it happens. Life application. Everything we do during the day, even if it seems a hindrance to our walk with the Lord, can be included in our mental thoughts of the victory which lies ahead. If things get difficult, we can still say to ourselves, God is giving me the victory despite this. And that's kind of a good place to go because there are times where you think, I'm just miserable. And then you think, I've already won. The victory is mine, I've won. What a reassuring thought as we trudge through the muck and mire of this existence. Let us be unwavering in our faith of the good end which Christ's work has already achieved for us. Already done, already done. We're just getting the victory one step at a time. 1558. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
This one says the labor is not in vain in the Lord. They just did a switch up, didn't they? I know. Oh, see? Okay. You know what? This is the last verse of this marvelous chapter. I could go back and just do this chapter again. It's so exciting. <laughs> it is so exciting. I, I, I just, you know, I was thinking about the book of Acts today, and I was thinking, I wish we'd just go back and do that again. <laughs> you know, everything about the Word. I don't care where you are in the Word. It's just fun, and it never gets old. All right, 1558. In this last verse of chapter 15, Paul sums up the entire discourse with a word of exhortation. Therefore, it's given as a result of the entire chapter. But more specifically, based on the note of victory seen in verses 54 through 57, which we've covered today. Because death is defeated in Christ, and because we are in Christ, death is defeated in us. What fear should we possess? What attack against us can prevail? Before we started today, we were talking about the full armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, right? What, what can prevail against us if we're in Christ? Okay. My beloved brethren, Paul writes, means that Paul is speaking to saved believers. The hope which is found in Jesus Christ is not a universal hope of man. Those not in Christ will not be included in the glories which he has written. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. There is no such thing as universal salvation. There is no fellowship with Belial, and there is no hope in Paul's words for the non-believer. I'm sorry, it's just that's the way it is. Be steadfast, Paul says. This comes from the Greek hedreos. This word comes from a root meaning seat, and thus it means sitting or immovable. It is only used three times, twice in 1 Corinthians and once in Colossians chapter 1. This is speaking of being firm and fixed in the doctrine which he has presented, the truth of the gospel of Christ and the knowledge which that truth leads to in the believer. And then he says, be immovable. This is from the Greek, ametakinetos. It is its only use in the New Testament, and it comes from two words. The negative particle, a, everybody knows that now. A means no, not, okay? And metakineo, which means to move away or dislodge. Hence, it means to not be moved. Whereas the last word was given concerning established doctrine, this one is given concerning perseverance in that doctrine. Have sound doctrine and then stick to that sound doctrine. Whether persecution or tempting comes along, we should be set in our faith so that neither can cause us to falter. Paul parallels these thoughts in the book of Galatians. I can't wait to get to the book of Galatians. I just can't. But we'll go there right now just temporarily. Galatians chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of, will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Verse 9, this is it. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Next, we are instructed, as Paul says, to always be always abounding in the work of the Lord. How easy it is to get distracted in this life. And yet, I had a friend, I won't give his name, but he called me yesterday. He co-heard the conversation, part of it. She was out walking the dogs and she come in and he called me and he says, Charlie, I'm struggling. I, I just haven't been reading my Bible. I've lost it. And I said, we talked through it. And I said, you know what? I've had the same problem. 
I've had the same problem with other things too. My prayers, I just fall asleep and I don't pray. I wake up at 11 o'clock at night and I think, Lord, I didn't pray. I got these people I need to pray for. I said, this is why I make a point. And this is in case anybody else has got the same problem. I'm glad he called because, you know, when somebody asks you a question, it helps you to unpackage your own problems. I say, I do the same thing every day. I'm, you know, I turn on the computer right now. I still have the windows because the Mac that I bought that went bad has been replaced and it's, you know, we're working on it. And uh, I've got a, another laptop computer, which is helping. But anyway, I'm on the windows right now and the windows computer has been doing the same update every single day for over three months. It's a 20 minute update. It never takes, it gets to 23% and it shuts off. There's something that it just can't get past in my computer. And for three months, they have not figured this out every single day. So I have to go in and I turn on the computer and then I go over and I first I start making the uh, coffee and that's cooking while I take out three dogs, which if I don't, they'll pee on the floor when the other dogs wake up because you got eight dogs and three of them get excited. So I know the routine. I take them out, they do, and then I bring it back in. Coffee's done by then. And so I get the coffee ready and I go to the, the thing and I push the button on the uh, computer and that's coming on. Now I start reading the Bible. Okay. And I've got things that I was thinking about the night before. I, I wake up and I think, I forgot to answer that guy's email. Or, I, 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 you know, I need to get to that website and I've got to get that resolved right now because it's on my mind. I don't want to forget this train of thought for this particular thing. All that temptation is there every day. And yet I say, as soon as that thing comes on after the 20 minutes I'm reading the Bible, I say, I don't care what it is. I am not going to stop until I've finished reading my Bible for the day. I've got a set amount that I read every day. Sometimes it might be a little more if it... I, I, I won't get into it. I won't explain that. But I want you to know that if you were struggling with the Bible and you pick it up and you say, I just read it and I don't remember what I read. I'm just not getting anything out of it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Read it anyway, because you are assimilating it, even if you don't know. And what I said to him, and he said, I've heard you say that before, and I'm glad you reminded me of that, is that when you read your Bible, you will be prepared to know when somebody tells you something that isn't true. You are going to have a little thing going on in the back of your head that says, you know, that doesn't sound right. And if you don't know your Bible, you will not be able to do that. It will be impossible because all you have is his words. That's all you have is his words. And so that little thing going in the back of your head, when somebody gives you a sermon and it sounds good, like women can preach, okay? And you say, I'm sorry, the Bible does not allow that. And that ought to be a, a clue in your head. And then you get into doctrine shopping, which we talked about before. Well, I don't want to agree with Paul, and so I'm going to start listening to sermons, which will appease my belief in women preaching, okay? And they'll take verses out of context, and they'll tell you that women can preach. But unless you know in advance what the Word says, and guess what? If you read it now, and you read it now, and you read it now, and you read it three times, and then you put it away for a year, you won't remember anything you read a year from now. You've got to read it every single day of your life. That is my encouragement to you, that if you're struggling with reading the Word and you're not getting anything out of it, read it anyway. You set your day. I guarantee that you eat your lunch. I guarantee that you take your break when your boss says you can take your break. I guarantee that you drive to a certain point and you're doing something. You're going to do those things. And when you get home, I know that you're going to turn on your TV and you're going to watch your favorite TV program. If you have time for those things, you better have time for the Lord, even if you don't think that it's benefiting you. When I was at Grace, and I, we'll get back into this after this. When I was at Grace, uh, interim pastor, not interim, but he was just there for one week. And he said, uh, he was asked to preach. And he said, you know, he said, 
there are times where you just don't feel like reading your Bible. He said, why would you force yourself to do that? And I felt like getting up and walking out of there. If I wasn't responsible for something at the time, I would have just left. I, that just, that galled me when I heard that. Why would you force yourself to read God's word? Because it's God's word. And it may not be affecting your life right now, but it will give you something that you need in the future. And if you're not reading that word and you're not in it, then you are the one that's failing. For him to say that, I was appalled. I You force yourself. If you don't feel like it, then you force yourself. Because when you're not feeling well and you know you got to eat, what are you going to do? You're going to force yourself to eat. I've seen people do it 10 million times. You don't feel like doing something. My boss wants me to do that and I just don't want to do it. Well, guess what? If you don't do it, you're going to get fired. So you force yourself to do it. Read your Bible. Two things. Yes. First of all. Oh, I'm, I'm excited I now. I've always found that if you're going to put time aside to do anything for the Lord. Yes. And you're going, oh my gosh, I got to do this. I got to do that. It's funny how the Lord will just like move. Everything gets aside, moved out of the way. Get it, and then everything gets done. Everything gets done. Yeah, if you put him first, mm -hmm. you will be rewarded for it. He will make sure everything else gets done. I am you're absolutely. Go ahead. Second point. Second thing. <clears throat> steeping. What? Steeping. Steep. Oh, yes. It's a passive word. Right. It's not that he is doing anything. It's steeping. It's steeping. It's, it's, it's that's, that's, that's right. You read it. You read it, you read it, you read it. You and you're it, just being steeped just, in it. It just becomes... That's absolutely right. And one other thing, which is a very good point that I've heard in a million sermons, and it still is valid after a million sermons, is that what did I preach on two weeks ago? Anybody? Okay. Of course you don't remember. And so why do I go to church if I don't remember what the it's, pastor it's preached the on on Sunday? Could... Well, the point is, what did your wife make you for dinner last night? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember, but guess what? It nourished me, didn't it? Mm -hmm. You were in the sermon. You heard it. You may not remember what it was at the at that time, but it nourished yeah. you. You don't have to remember it right now, but it did something for you. Right. I've heard right. that in 20 sermons, yeah. and every time I hear it, it reminds me how important that precept is. Yeah. Just because you don't remember what Hidako cooked like, hey, you come to my house, and you have her dinner, and you don't remember it, you're in trouble. <laughs> you will remember. I guarantee it. She's the best cook on this planet. <laughs> Anyway, let's go on. Galatians 6, 9, I read. Next, we are instructed to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. I know I read this. I'm going to read what I didn't again. How easy it is to get distracted in this life. And yet Paul asks us to have our priorities right. We have the Bible to study. We have church to attend. We have a ministry we have been called to. We have people to speak to about Christ. We have devotionals to read and to ponder. We have thanks and praise to be offered continuously and so on. Paul is asking us to set aside the temporary things of this world in order to direct our lives to the work which has eternal meaning. All the other things that we do, I don't care what they are, they are not eternal in meaning. I was thinking of the old joke a day ago that nobody on his dying bed says, I wish I'd worked an extra hour. <laughs> nobody says that. Not one person. I, there are people that say, I wish I'd gotten closer to the Lord, or I wish I had spent my time following Jesus, but nobody says, I wish I had spent more time at the work. That's the last thing you're thinking about when you're on your deathbed. <coughs> Finally, he tells us that in these efforts, we are to know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. He is, I guarantee you, pray for these guys. I guarantee you that Ray and Jess are going to have a point. They may not be there yet. They haven't really gotten into what they're doing. They're over in Papua New Guinea, and they're going to think, are we making any difference at all here? I guarantee it. It's coming. They're going to feel hemmed in. They're going to feel beaten down. 
and we need to pray for the missionaries that are out there. I guarantee you that those two young people are, they may be on fire right now, but there's a time where it's going to come where they think, are we making any difference? We just told them about salvation and they get saved and now they're out sacrificing to the wood god or something, you know, and they're going to think, what, what are we doing here? It is worth what they're doing. Their lives are not worth quitting what they're doing for any reason. They are honoring the Lord with their lives and they will be rewarded for it, but they need the prayers of the people. And maybe one of them is going to email you. Some of you know them and they may say, man, I'm really struggling right now. Don't tell anybody, but I'm having a tough time. And then you say, okay, well, can I tell other people to at least pray for you? Yes. I'm thinking of somebody that we have that with right now, Jim and I. I can't tell them what it is, but they can pray for this person. Okay. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord. He has meticulously defended the truth of the gospel, and he has given answers to those who questioned the truth of the resurrection. They're asking, how do we know? And Paul has answered them. As he did, he provided examples of known things, such as a seed sprouting to new life, to show that even in creation, there is a suitable precedent for us to comprehend and to trust. In his words, in his words he used scripture itself to prove what he had stated. He didn't just make it up out of his head. He didn't just claim that it was from the Lord. It is from the Lord because he cited it from the Lord's word. Okay. The surety of the word of God stands as a testament to the guarantee of the fact that we who are in the Lord will participate in his resurrection. That's Paul's words in the Lord will participate in his resurrection and the eternal life, which stems from it. Once again, you talk about eternal salvation. Did he say anything questioning that in any way, shape, or form? He talks elsewhere about judgment. He talks about rewards and loss of rewards. He talks about people that have walked away from the faith, that have shipwrecked their faith, and yet he never questions their salvation. Okay? Therefore, we are to be unmovable in our faith and practice, knowing that a better reward awaits us in our heavenly life to come. When you think that it's not worth it, when you think that it's just trudge and hey. Tom and I know, Jim knows, Laura knows, we've been out at the projects. 13 years Tom has been doing this. And I guarantee you that Tom and I have had a couple times where we've talked to each other. Haven't we? It just seems like we're getting nowhere. We're spinning our wheels. Oh, it just, I just, I don't know what I'm doing out here. And yet we continue to go every Saturday. Why? Because we know that it's important. Just like us reading the Bible, staying in the Bible, because if we don't, then we're going to start getting away from it and somebody's going to tell us something false and we're going to believe it because we're not grounded in it. We are there every week as their little bit of nourishment that they get. And some of them really appreciate it. Uh, Dora said it just this past week. She said something about that. You've been coming all these years and, you know, whatever she said, it, I, just something off the top of my head. But, but some people need that every week and it changes their lives. Sonia in particular, anybody, and uh, Ronaldo. You know, you think of these people that were so far off in their their lives and now they're living normal lives but it's just a little bit at a time and so there are times where tom and i have really sat down and just questioned what are we doing out here you know i i remember it, it always happens tom said this to me and i said it to him we'll be pulling up one saturday morning and i just don't want to pull in here today i just like i just don't even want to be here and when we leave we pull out and what is it it's the best day of our life it was the best day of our life. We got what we needed, even if nobody else got what they needed that day. Isn't that true? Okay. Pennies aside. Uh, pennies aside. <laughs> pennies aside. Uh, it, it, just so the people online, because we only got a couple more minutes and we're going to finish with the life application. 
when we're at the projects, we have every week a penny contest. Who can find the most pennies? Okay. You would think they'd be I, gone by now. Uh, you would think that all of the pennies would be gone by now. And every week we find 20 or 30 pennies. Every single week. Every week without fail. Sometimes we find a dollar. We find quarters and nickels. And But I want you all to know that I have lost twice. Oh, you keep scoring Twice. It? Yes. <laughs> I have lost twice. Now, here's no, the way it goes. We find, we find pennies. And if we find uh, two pennies and somebody finds a nickel, it's still the two pennies that wins. Oh, right. Okay. But if you have the same amount of money then coins. the the coins matter okay then the value matters so it goes number of coins first and then value oh, and so yes now i haven't always been there so other people have won but i have lost <laughs> twice like, i love finding the pennies it's just it's it's just fun it keeps us going it gives us something to anticipate okay so let's go on we've got uh, therefore we are to be unmovable in our faith and practice knowing that a better reward awaits us in our heavenly life to come life application in those moments of life when doubt anxiety weariness or confusion come into our minds we all need to all we need to do is to return to 1 corinthians chapter 15 and ponder its truths when we do we can refresh our souls and re-engage the battle around us with confidence in the hope that we possess wonderful 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 passage of scripture heavenly father we thank you for the hope that we possess. We thank you for the surety of it, the absolute guarantee that our bodies are going to rise, whether at the rapture or whether, well, both at the rapture, but whether out of a grave or whether standing here in our blue jeans on Thursday evening, whenever, whatever it is, we are going to be with you. It's a guarantee and it's a surety, and we thank you for that. Oh boy, Lord, we're so excited. What a great blessing it is to come to this chapter. And Lord, that is... Hopefully a great hope for anybody that's watching that we mentioned in our prayers right now that is suffering with their own trials and maybe even their own mortality in the days ahead. But they know that they will rise again because of the hope of Christ. How wonderful that is. Thank you for that, Lord. And we do pray for each one of those people and any others that we have missed today in my failing notes of, of prayer requests. You search them out, Lord, and remember and uh, look attentively at them. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we look forward to seeing each other again here and being in your presence on uh, Sunday morning, and may it be so. But until then, we just give you our love and our thanks, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.